0: I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our tiny power. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. This week we are going to be talking about Julius Caesar. And in order to introduce you to Caesar, I wanted to start by telling you about another historical figure, and this is someone you probably have never heard of. His name is Simeon Saxa-Coburg Gotha. He's still alive. He's 80 years old, and he lives in Bulgaria. He was the prime minister of Bulgaria from 2001 to 2005, and now he's retired from politics. And so why am I bringing up this obscure Bulgarian politician? Well, because when he was only six years old, he was named the Tsar of Bulgaria. Less than three years later, Bulgaria was invaded by the Soviets and he went into exile with his family. Now, as I mentioned last podcast, the word Tsar comes from Caesar. Tsar comes from Khazar, which comes from Kaisar, which comes from Caesar, which was originally pronounced Kaisar. So for 2000 years, all the way up until 1946, someone somewhere in the world was using the name of caesar to legitimize their rule that should tell you something about the impact that caesar had on the world i mean imagine two thousand years from now imagine about the year 4050 and think about if someone was still saying i am the true obama i am the true trump i am the true bush and that's totally ridiculous we know that would never happen but just ask yourself what kind of impact would someone have to have in order for that to be true? What would someone have to do today so that in 2000 years, someone would still be using their name to legitimize their rule? And what kind of leader would it take to have that kind of impact? What kind of person? And that tells you a little bit about the kind of person that Caesar was. Caesar was an absolute genius. He was an outstanding general, writer, statesman, orator, and lawgiver. He founded the Roman empire over 2000 years ago. And since then dozens of empires and countries and many empires have sought to legitimize their rule by claiming to be heirs of Caesar and heirs to the Roman empire. And that goes from Charlemagne to the czars of Russia, to the Kaisers of Germany, to Napoleon, even to Hitler. And that's just scratching the surface. There've been many, many other examples besides that. I think if you ask me who has the best claim to having actually taken over the world the answer would have to be either Caesar, Jesus, or Muhammad. I think only those two, Jesus or Muhammad, can claim to have had as large of an impact on human history and the way we live as Caesar did. So I'm really excited to dig into his life and how he did what he did. But before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to my sources. The sources I relied on most heavily were the books Julius Caesar by Philip Freeman and also Caesar, Life of a Colossus by Adrian Goldsworthy. Both are very good biographies. And if you're looking to dig in more to the life of Caesar, I highly recommend both of them. One other quick announcement before we get started. I have been using a Gmail address for my contact information, but I have a new email. My new email is ben at httot So that is my name, Ben, at the acronym for how to take over the world, httot if you want to get a hold of me, ask me a question, make a suggestion, give me feedback, whatever, email me there, or send the feedback on Twitter, at i I've stopped monitoring that Gmail address, so don't send anything there. It won't get replied to. Okay, so let's start from the beginning. Caesar was born in 100 BC, and his full name was Gaius Julius Caesar. At the time, it would have actually been pronounced Gaius Julius Caesar. His first name was Gaius. His family names were Julius and Caesar. Julius was sort of the big family, the clan that he was from, and Caesar was his branch of the family, his side of the clan. And by the way, even though we know it was pronounced Kaisar, and that wasn't even his first name, his first name was Gaius, we're going to call him. I'm going to call him Caesar throughout this podcast because everyone's familiar with that. It's what we're used to. And I don't know, it feels pretentious to call him Gaius or Kaisar. And Caesar was born into what is called a patrician family. It means they were one of the very oldest and earliest families of Rome. Rome had a very distinct and well-defined class system. And Caesar's family belonged to the highest class. So Caesar is born into this very old aristocratic family. But having said that, they hadn't been very successful in quite some time. They were what you would now call cash poor. They had a decent amount of property, uh, a bunch of farmland which was what allowed them to still be considered very upper class, but they didn't have any spending money. In fact, they were almost penniless when it came to that. So Caesar grew up in a lower middle class neighborhood called Subura, where they would have been around very few other aristocratic families. Uh, He grew up more around immigrants, foreigners, and some pretty normal people, even, even some poorer people. And we don't really know a lot about his childhood. The earliest biography of him was written on these old scrolls, And some of the first scrolls shriveled up and crumbled so our oldest introduction to caesar starts out saying when caesar was 16 but we do know that like most aristocratic children he was tutored at home rather than going to a school in terms of appearance we know that he was taller than average and quite thin with a full face and rather fair skin and despite his apparent skinniness he became quite good at athletics especially horseback riding The Romans weren't like the Greeks. They didn't celebrate sport for its own sake. They really emphasized martial skills, like throwing javelins, running, swimming, and riding horses. So that's the kind of physical education he would have had as a kid. And he wasn't particularly gifted athletically very naturally, but he was very determined and disciplined and made himself into a good athlete through sheer effort. In ancient Rome, as children grew up, they were expected to spend more and more time with their parent of the same sex. So, Caesar would have tagged along with his father as he went into the forum and the senate and engaged in political life. And Rome was this unbelievably political state. That was sort of the point of life, especially if you were an aristocratic man. They had this word, auctoritas. And obviously, the English word authority comes from auctoritas. But we don't have a word in English that translates exactly what it means. Auctoritas encompassed not only your authority, but also your reputation, your fame, your influence. And to a male born in the upper classes of the Roman Republic, increasing your autoritas was what you were trying to do with your life. And there were two main ways of doing that. Gaining political office and winning military glory. Now bear with me for a second, because I'm going to take a minute to explain the Roman political system. It's really impossible to understand Caesar's life without understanding the system he was working in, because he was... Thinking about how to get more autoritas. And a big way that he was doing that was gaining political office. So, if you don't understand the political system, none of this really makes sense. And the first thing you have to understand about Rome's political system is that Rome was a very recent power. They had been this little republic on the banks of the Tiber River. And then, all of a sudden, boom, they burst onto the scene. They leave mainland Italy for the first time to conquer Sicily, which is in modern day Italy. And then boom, before you know it, they control the whole Mediterranean, Greece, Turkey, southern France and Spain, Sardinia, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Egypt, and more. And frankly, their political system was still set up to run a little city-state in Italy, not this massive multi-ethnic system with territory on three continents. The Roman Republic had three branches of government. The first we'll talk about is the Senate. This is the one you've probably heard of. It's the famous one. But it wasn't like the U.S. Senate. It was a body of 300 to 600 members, the exact number fluctuated. And that's because senators weren't popularly elected. They were citizens from the wealthy elite who had advanced in their career a little and had political aspirations. And once you were admitted to the Senate, you were in for life. Unless you did something really bad, uh, then sometimes you could be expelled, but otherwise you stayed in the Senate. The Senate was the central political body and the beating heart of Roman politics. They met almost every day and debated legislation, conducted foreign relations, and chose regional governors among other powers. The second branch was magistrates. This was basically the executive branch. Magistrates were elected. There were many different kinds of magistrates, starting with pretty low levels, like military tribunes, and then working your way up with quaestors, aediles, tribunes of the plebs, and then finally, and these are the ones you will want to remember, you had eight praetors. And then at the very top, you had two consuls. Consul was the very highest position you could hold in Roman government. And it was kind of like president, except there were two at once. Once you had been a praetor or a consul, you were often sent to govern one of Rome's provinces, one of the regions that they had conquered. And generally, you would get elected as a low level magistrate to start out. And then after that, you would be made a Senator. So you would sit in the Senate every day and then Senators would eventually be elected to higher level magistracies like Quaestor, Edile, and eventually Praetor. If you were really successful and then consul, if you were really, really successful, and then after that, go be a governor and then you come back and you're a Senator again. So these are the magistrates, they're temporary positions held by Senators, generally held by Senators. They commanded the military, supervised building public works and holding public festivals, and oversaw day-to-day management of the government. And by the way, every position only lasted for one year. You're the consul for one year. You're the governor for one year. And when I said Rome's system was built for small city-state, this is one area where you see that. I mean, it's no problem to only be governor for a year when your province is another city-state in Italy. But when your province is modern-day Turkey or Syria... And you don't speak the language and you don't know the customs and you have to figure it all out as well as try to accomplish whatever you want to accomplish in just one year. Well, that's a pretty inconvenient and inefficient system. So anyway, that is the second branch, the magistrates, the third branch of government was the popular assemblies. These were voting bodies made up of all adult male citizens in the Roman Republic, these assemblies had the power to actually pass legislation. And that legislation would usually be given to them from the Senate with a recommendation of what to do. So the Senate also had a lot of power over legislation, but not complete control because the assembly didn't have to follow the recommendations that the Senate gave them. The assemblies also chose the magistrates and these popular assemblies were not permanent. This was just the citizens coming together every now and then to vote on something important. The Senate was deliberately and explicitly drawn from the upper classes of Rome, but not the popular assemblies. There was a notion in Rome that the government was supposed to reflect the will of the people broadly. Rome was a republic. The actual term was res publica. That's where we get republic. And that literal translation, res publica, means public thing or public concern. And that was in contrast to a monarchy or kingdom, which was a private thing. It was basically run for the benefit of the king. But the res publica, was a public thing, a public concern, and its purpose was to serve everyone. Another way that this system of government was built for a smaller city-state was the power held by the Senate. And they held a ton of power, and that's fine when you're a little city-state republic, and you're starting to get some money, starting to come up. And so people start to immigrate to your city, and the nobles basically say, hey, you can come in and be a part of Rome, you can be a citizen and have a vote, but we're going to have one branch of government... To protect our interests and we're going to make sure that we stay on top because we were here first and that kind of makes sense right i'm joining your thing by coming to rome so okay you can have some extra say but if you were born in a city state in turkey and you've never been to rome you don't speak latin and you are conquered by rome well then this roman senate that is bleeding you dry with all their taxes starts to make a lot less sense and that's something that was becoming a tension When Caesar came around, more people were demanding more representation in the government of Rome. Now, very briefly, I also need to explain the background of Caesar's family. As I mentioned, they were no longer wealthy or prominent, but their fortunes had changed a little when Caesar's aunt married a man by the name of Marius. Marius was also from an aristocratic family of little note, but he became a war hero. He became really popular in Rome. He's a man of the people. He stands for the common man. And eventually there's a civil war and Marius gets exiled. But eventually he comes back and he becomes this authoritarian ruler in Rome. He's not ruling alone. He's got a co-dictator, a guy by the name of Cinna. but he holds a ton of power. So Caesar comes from a poor family, but he does have this very, very powerful uncle. Also, his father marries someone from a very wealthy family, very powerful family. So Caesar kind of has a mixed bag. He has a poor family with little prestige but a very famous uncle and some decent political connections through his mother. At age 14, Caesar's uncle Marius dies. So there goes that connection. And at age 16, his father dies. And as the oldest male, Caesar was now in charge of his family, including his sister and his mother and their household of servants and slaves. Now around the same time, he is named as a very important priest. The position is called Dialis. And the flamendialis was really respected. It was an ancient priesthood dating back to the very earliest days of Rome. And the thing about that is Caesar would always be respected, but that was going to be it. That was going to be the end of his political career. The flamendialis had all these really old ancient rituals he had to observe. He had to have mud around his bed. He couldn't sleep outside of Rome for more than three days. He couldn't ride a horse. He couldn't see a dead body. And so Caesar was not going to be able to have a political or military career with those sorts of restrictions, but he doesn't come from a wealthy family and it's a decent living to be Flamendialis, So it's not the worst spot in the world for him, at least early on, it seems. He also gets to marry Cinna's daughter, and that's pretty cool. Now that Marius is dead, Cinna is the sole ruler of Rome and by far the most powerful man there. So this is another great connection for Caesar to get to marry his daughter. And besides the political connection, it appears that the marriage was genuinely a good match. They were both very happy, though Caesar was certainly not very faithful. Caesar was a notorious womanizer for his entire life. And in ancient Rome, there was no real concept of male adultery. It wasn't expected that men would be faithful to their wives and a wife certainly could not divorce her husband for having a lover. So Caesar had a lot of different lovers. Many times they were married to other men, and this was known, but nevertheless, his marriage to Cinna's daughter appears to have been quite happy. And when Caesar is 18, his life changes even more. There's this general named Sulla, and he starts a civil war. Remember, Caesar's father-in-law, Cinna had been in charge. And he's fighting against Sulla, and Cinna is killed. And now Sulla becomes dictator. And the dictatorship of Sulla is truly nightmarish. He was a staunch enemy of these guys, Marius and Cinna. And so he starts exterminating all his enemies, all the guys who were friends of Marius or Sinna. hundreds of people are killed. And soon he develops an even more efficient way to take care of these people. He just starts posting lists of condemned people and says, yeah, anyone who wants to kill any of these guys can pick up a reward. And this is called the proscriptions. And it causes this horrible, murderous chaos where most of the people who are killed are killed not because they're on the list, but because people want their property. And it's so chaotic, people can just kind of get away with murdering people. It reminds me a lot of the French Revolution. Here's how it was described by the ancient historian Plutarch. Quote, Lists of proscribed people were posted not only in Rome, but in every city in Italy. There was nowhere that remained free from the stain of bloodshed. No God's temple, no guest friend's hearth, no family home. Husbands were butchered in the arms of their wives, sons in the arms of their mothers. Only a tiny proportion of the dead were killed because they had angered or made an enemy of someone. Far more were killed for their property. And even the executioners tended to say, This man was killed by his large house, this one by his garden, that one by his warm springs. Well, luckily, Caesar isn't proscribed or killed, despite his close connections to Marius and Cinna. And that's because he's young? He's not particularly remarkable or powerful yet, and he's poor. No one really wants his stuff, so he kind of flies under the radar, except he is this kind of important priest, the Flamendialis. and when Sulla realizes that one of the most important priests is married to Cinna's daughter, he says, hey, it's cool. I'm not going to murder you. Uh, I just need one thing from you, Caesar. Divorce your wife and marry someone that I pick out, someone who is close to me or one of my friends and not. In any way related to or close to Cinna's regime. Now, Sulla also says this to a bunch of other people, and to a man, they all agree to it. Divorce was very common in Rome, so it's no problem. Sulla says, Get divorced, and okay, I'd rather get divorced than murdered, so I'll do it. But this is where you get the first idea that this Caesar kid might be special, because he is the only one who says no. And why did he say no? It's hard to go back 2,000 years and really get in his head and know exactly what he's thinking. I've heard a few different rationales, but to me, none of them make sense. He was risking his life. The only rationale that really makes sense to me at the end of the day is he refused to divorce his wife because he didn't want to. This was just Caesar. He liked being in control. He didn't like being told what to do. And he would rather risk his life than divorce his wife just because someone else told him he had to. Well, Sulla strips Caesar of his priesthood and sends an order for him to be arrested so that he can be executed. So Caesar takes off for the hills and goes hiding in the countryside of Southern Italy. For weeks, he is moving from town to town every night, just trying to stay hidden and avoid soldiers who are looking for him. As he's doing this, he contracts malaria and things turn very dire when he is finally caught by one of Sulla's soldiers. He has to use every penny he has to bribe the soldier to not turn him in. And it looks like it's only a matter of time until he's caught again. This time he'll have no money to bribe and he'll be executed. But then he finally catches a break. Remember how Caesar's mom comes from a wealthy, prominent family in Rome? Well, she convinces a couple relatives to go beg for Caesar's life. So they do and Sulla agrees to spare him, but he gives them a warning. Sulla was what is called an optimate. I assume at the time it was pronounced optimates or something like that. I'm not sure. But the optimates favored giving more power to the senate and favored the interests of the wealthiest romans but marius caesar's uncle and caesar himself were populists they tended to take the side of the middle class and less well-off romans and wanted more power for the popular assemblies so politically they were kind of at loggerheads and so as sulla tells these guys that's fine i'll spare the life of this kid caesar he also says quote but remember this young man who you have been so desperate to save will one day destroy the optimates you have worked with me to preserve. For in this Caesar, I see many a Marius. So clearly, even at this young age, Sulla could see that there was something special about this Caesar kid. Well, when he's spared, Caesar comes back to Rome. He's still married to his wife. And the guy must feel special. Of everyone in Rome, he was the only one to look this authoritarian in the eye and say, screw you, I'm not doing what you say. And he survives. Having said that, he wasn't about to press his luck, so he doesn't spend long in Rome before he takes off for military service. He figures he'll be safer there. So he goes to serve in the military in a Roman region that they called Asia. It's in the area that we now call Turkey. And remember Sulla has kicked him out of this priestly position as Flamendialis, So now he's stripped of his priesthood. He has the chance to have a normal political career and serve in the military. For Caesar, getting stripped of this priesthood turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Caesar goes to Asia and he's serving at a pretty low level. He's still young. He's only 19 years old. This is 80 BC. And while fighting there, he distinguishes himself and wins what is called the civic crown. It's basically Rome's version of the medal of honor. In fact, if you read the description, it's almost exactly like the medal of honor. You won it by demonstrating extraordinary bravery in combat, usually by risking your life to save a fellow citizen. And this is a pretty big deal for him. He continues to serve in Asia for a couple more years. When in 78 BC, Sulla dies. And now Caesar figures it's safe to come home. And so he does. He moves back to Rome to the lower middle class neighborhood that he grew up in, Subura. In Subura, he basically works as a lawyer. And he's a very good one. He's known as one of the best orators, one of the best speakers in Rome. And in Rome, trials are very different from modern trials. They're usually held in a very public place where basically anyone can kind of wander in and out. And as a consequence, the crowd plays a very big role in these trials. It's still a trial by jury, but the emotions of the crowd, of the people just listening in, could greatly affect the outcome. So Caesar is learning to speak and make arguments, and not highly logical legal arguments, but this is a great training ground for how to speak to the masses, how to convince a large body of people in a speech. And by the way, learning about this legal career that Caesar had got me to wondering, is a legal education and a legal background, is that a good background to taking over the world? Because Vladimir Putin studied law, so it just, I don't know, it made me wonder. So I decided to look at presidents of the United States and use that as a sample. In the United States, tons of our politicians are lawyers. It's the most common profession in Congress by far. And if you go back to the start of our country, most presidents of the United States were also lawyers. Seven of the first 10 presidents were practicing attorneys at some point before they became president. But as time went on, that number steadily decreased. Of the last ten men elected president, only three completed law school, and only one was ever a practicing attorney. And that one was Richard Nixon, not exactly noted for his success as a president. And I think that's because in the early United States, only wealthy landowners could vote. And making arguments in very formal, logical terms is helpful when you have a small audience of highly educated people that you need to convince. But now in an era when not only can everyone vote, but you can communicate with everyone via television and the internet, you need to be able to make appeals to the masses. And a legal education doesn't necessarily prepare you for that in today's world. If you look at the 2016 election, someone who had been a practicing attorney, Hillary Clinton, was beaten by someone with extensive experience in reality television, Donald Trump. And many people think that this was because she was making these very formal, logical arguments while he was out there using his reality TV background. He was appealing to people on a very emotional level. Both being an attorney and being on reality television teach you something about how to communicate, but in very, very different ways. And in Caesar's world, being a legal advocate was at least as much like being a reality TV star as it was like being an attorney in today's world. So in Caesar's day, You could learn to communicate with the masses by being an attorney, but nowadays a legal career is a perfectly fine way to earn a living, but if you're learning how to influence people on a massive scale, you're gonna have to get those communication skills from somewhere else. Okay, end of tangent about that. One other thing to note about this time in Caesar's life is the way he dressed. Everyone in his social class wore the same thing, and that was a basic short-sleeved toga. Well, Caesar wears a long sleeve toga that has a little bit of fringe on the sleeves. It's not too different from what people normally wear. People can still pick him out as a member of the ruling elite, but it's just different enough that it makes him stand out and marks him as special. It reminds me a little bit of Steve Jobs with his jeans and black mock neck. Again, it's not something wildly different from what a Silicon Valley executive might wear, but it's enough to be distinctive. Both of these guys wanted to get attention and set themselves apart without being ridiculous or distracting from what they actually had to say. And both of them did that masterfully through what they wore, among other ways. One other thing that is kind of random, but just struck me, is that Caesar was a light eater. And when I read this, I remembered that Napoleon, especially when he was young, was also really known as a light eater. And Steve Jobs through his whole life was a vegan and also known for being a very light eater. So then, of course, I had to go back and look up Putin's eating habits, the only other person I've covered in this podcast. And yep, turns out that all four of them were known as remarkably light eaters, especially early in life. And I find that so interesting. I think part of it is that they all grew up without much money, so they needed to save money. And one of the first things that they cut was excessive food. That's something good to remember for those of us who maybe eat out a little more than we should. But I think there's something else at work as well. I think they were just so focused on accomplishing their goals that they didn't want to take the time to think about food or sit down for long meals. It's a very random connection between the four people I've covered so far. And yet in a weird way, I think it tells you a lot. Well, after a few years of working the courts in Rome, he decides it's time to further his education and become an even better communicator. And at the time Greece was where the best education could be found. So he gets on a boat bound for Greece. But Caesar doesn't make it. He's captured by pirates. And when they board his ship, they are delighted to find this young Roman noble. They hold him hostage and let his servants go and say, tell everyone we're holding Caesar ransom for 20 talents. And a talent was a sum of money. And 20 talents was a fairly hefty sum. But Caesar hears this and says, 20 talents? I'm worth more than that. You should charge at least 50. And the captors are a little confused. They think, sure, okay, whatever. We'll charge 50. And this is the way that Caesar acts with his captors the entire time that they hold him hostage. Here's how Plutarch described it He held them in such disdain that whenever he lay down to sleep, he would send and order them to stop talking. For thirty eight days, as if the men were not his watchers, but his royal bodyguard, he shared in their sports and exercises with great unconcern. He also wrote poems and sundry speeches which he read aloud to them. And those who did not admire these, he would call to their faces, illiterate barbarians and often laughingly threatened to crucify them all. The pirates were delighted at this and attributed this boldness of speech to a certain simplicity and boyish mirth. Well, Caesar's friends and servants quickly raised the 50 talents. They don't go all the way back to Rome and get it from friends and family. Instead, they just go to local communities and raise it on loan. Caesar would be expected to pay it back when he had the opportunity to. Which is not a great situation for him because he's totally broke at this point. So when Caesar gets free, he wastes no time. He goes to the nearest towns and they're all in Roman territory. And he says, hey, I need men and I need ships. And he quickly raises a little fleet and a little band of soldiers. And he immediately sails back to the cove where he was being held. And he does so so quickly that the pirates are still there and he captures them. He takes all their booty and their money, including the ransom money that he had just given to them, and he pays back the people who had helped him free him. And then, remember how he told the pirates laughingly that he was going to crucify them someday? Well, here's the thing. Crucifixion is an agonizing form of torture, and he had kind of become friends with these pirates. So he is going to crucify them, but he also decides to grant them mercy, not by letting them go. He grants them mercy by having their throats cut before they are crucified. He saves them from the torture, but he still has them killed and hung up on crosses as a warning to others. I think this story really captures the strange combinations and contradictions of Caesar's personality. He's very cruel and yet very merciful. He's very charming and yet at the same time imperious. And beneath it all, he has this magnificent self-assuredness, this inner belief. He never doubted himself. Now, even when he was captured by pirates and not to fear death, at that point, he still acted like he was in total control of the situation. And by so doing, in many ways, he was still in control of the situation. And after he does this, he finally does make it over to Greece. He proves to be an adept pupil and a gifted orator. But it's not too long before he interrupts his studies again. In Asia, there was this rebellion. This king named Mithridates sends some of his forces to invade some of Rome's allies in the region. Well, Caesar holds no official position in the military. He's just a loyal citizen who happens to be a war hero. And this doesn't really concern him, but what does he do? He sails over to the war zone and starts putting together an army of men from Rome's local allies in the region. And then he takes that little army and goes and beats Mithridates forces and frees the region. And this illustrates a really important attribute of Caesar confidence. He had no military command, no real legal right to raise troops and fight on behalf of Rome. All he had was a desire to win glory on behalf of himself and on behalf of his country. And yet, despite his lack of his official authority, all these city-states just kind of got in line and gave him their men. And the men went and followed him and fought for him. He must have exuded supreme confidence for these men to be willing to follow him. I think there's something else to it, too. I don't quite know what to call it. It's something like bravery combined with audacity and recklessness. I'll call it daringness. You know the game chicken? It's where two people either run at each other or drive at each other, and the first one to turn aside loses. Well, Caesar would have been really good at chicken because he had a high degree of this daringness. He fully committed. He was always willing to gamble, always willing to push the envelope just a little more, and he never wavered. It's the same attribute you need in order to launch a startup. When you launch a startup, you have to coordinate all these people. And at the beginning, it kind of feels like you're lying to them. You go to get the product manufactured and the manufacturer says, okay, we can start on a manufacturing deal, but you have the money for this, right? You're going to be able to pay us. And you say, yeah, totally. In the meantime, you're talking to the funders, the money guys. And they're saying, if we give you this money, you have a manufacturing deal that where you can use it, right? You can actually produce your product and you say, oh yeah, totally. And you're doing the same thing with distributors and employees and regulators and all these different parties. It's this whole house of cards. And if you're successful, it's not a lie because it all comes together and you're right, you get the funding and the manufacturing deal and the distribution deal and everything else necessary to make it happen. But at the center of it all is a single person with this confidence and this daringness and Caesar had that. And I think it's what allowed him to just walk up to these city-states and say, Everyone's getting on board, everyone is volunteering troops and we're going to go find Mithridates and everyone just says, okay. And it works. He raises his army, he fights and he wins. Well, shortly after this incident, he goes back to Rome again. He serves as a legal advocate again, and he's elected to a new priesthood. This time he's elected as a pontiff, which is not nearly as restrictive a priesthood as the Flamendialis that he was as a teenager. He also gets elected as a military tribune. So he's serving as a middle ranking military officer. And by the way, this might seem weird to our modern ears that Caesar becomes a priest and a military officer at the same time, but that was Roman society for you. They mingled civic, religious, and military service very, very closely. Both religious authority and military command would add to your autoritas, so it wouldn't have seemed weird to them at the time that he became a priest at the same time that he advanced in the military. Also around this time, Caesar has a daughter named Julia, any daughters he had would be named Julia, just like his sister, his aunt, and his mom. Because women literally did not have first names in Roman society. They didn't really have a big public role, so they just used the feminine version of their last name. And if someone had multiple daughters, they were numbered. So if your last name was Julius, the women in your family would be named Julia I, Julia two, Julia three, etc., etc. But that isn't to say that they were neglected or not loved within their family. Uh, so this would have been a, a cause for celebration for caesar to have this daughter julia well at this point caesar is progressing normally up the ladder of power military tribune was usually the first step on the ladder of power in politics and the next step is quaestor so he runs for quaestor and is elected and as quaestor he is like an assistant or advisor to the governor of a region almost like a chief of staff and caesar gets assigned to spain so he's going to sail out to spain to be quaestor but before he leaves Two people close to him die, his aunt Julia and his wife, and he holds these elaborate funerals for both of them at his aunt's funeral. He displays images of his uncle Marius, which is good propaganda, but highly controversial since Marius had been something of an authoritarian, but he was still beloved by the masses. And this is popular with them doesn't have any immediate payoff since he's about to leave Rome for Spain, but he's thinking ahead and the funeral for his wife was really unexpected. Because young women typically didn't receive big elaborate funerals. They didn't have any military conquests to show off. And their progeny weren't yet old enough to be a tribute to them. So they just had quiet family funerals. That Caesar has this big funeral for her is a sign of his genuine love and affection. And it's touching to the people who see it. So this is a very popular move. Uh, Last episode we talked about how effective it can be to make these grand displays of power... Well, this demonstrates how effective showing a little bit of vulnerability and sensitivity can be as well. So anyway, after these funerals, he finally does take off for Spain. And he gets there, and his main task is to perform an audit, which he does. And he does it well and effectively, and it takes him most of the year. And while he's there, he visits a temple. And in this temple, there is a statue of Alexander the Great. And Caesar realizes that he is about the same age as Alexander the Great was when he died. He's in his early 30s. He would have been about 32 or 33 and he gets physically upset. He may have started crying. And when someone asks him what's wrong, he says, he realizes that Alexander, the great had conquered the whole world at the age that Caesar was at that point, And that Caesar hadn't accomplished anything yet. And this motivates him. He doesn't want to keep messing around out the end of the world in Spain. He wants to go where the action is. He wants to gain serious fame and fortune for himself. So he leaves Spain a little early and goes back to Rome. He gets elected to a position where he's in charge of a major highway. And he accomplishes some major upgrades, which will win him some big kudos with the general populace, uh, even paying out of his own pocket at times for upgrades and renovations. Then in 65 BC, at age 35, he's elected to the next highest position on the ladder. The position is called aedile. He's in charge of a bunch of basic civic services within Rome. But one of the big functions, and one of the reasons people wanted to be elected aedile, is you're in charge of throwing big games and festivals and every year the ediles are trying to throw bigger and bigger games and festivals than the people the year before them. Rome has a public budget for this kind of stuff, but because this is a chance to increase your own popularity and aptoritas, people always go way past the budget, and when they do, they just pay out of their own pockets. Well, Caesar goes further than anyone else before him. He goes all out. He throws these incredible games, 320 pairs of gladiators all in silver ornately decorated armor, and these huge feasts and public works. It's very extravagant and expensive, and he pays for all of it. Now, when I say Caesar paid for all of it, you are probably thinking and remembering that Caesar was not particularly wealthy. In fact, he was pretty poor. So how's he spending so much? Well, one word debt, a minimum property qualification for a member of the highest social class was 400,000 sesterti. So that's how much you had to own in order to be considered a member of the highest class. And by the way, Sesterti is the plural of Sestertius, which was a type of currency. It was a small silver coin. So that's a small fortune, 400,000 Sesterti. And how much debt does Caesar have at this point? 31 million Sesterti. And that is a huge crushing amount of debt. And this goes back to the daringness I was talking about. He's taking on all this debt, but he knows that if he has a successful political career, he's going to be able to pay it back. How? Well, if you're a governor of one of Rome's furthest away provinces, there's the chance to make yourself rich, especially if there's a war. You conquer cities and you take all the spoils you can. So Caesar is taking out all these debts with the expectation that someday he's going to be able to be a governor and make a ton of money and pay it all off. It's a big bet. There are hundreds of senators and only a handful of provinces where you can be governor, but he has this daringness, so he's going to make the gamble. And by the way, I do not recommend this as a personal strategy. Caesar was trying to accomplish a very specific thing at a very specific point in history, but in today's day and age, taking on huge crushing personal debt is almost never the answer uh, and is almost never a good personal strategy for advancing your career. Well, after he is aedile, Caesar keeps moving up the ladder. He was elected a praetor in 63 BC. Remember, that's the step right below consul. And in the same year, the election for Pontifex Maximus is held. The Pontifex Maximus was the chief priest of the whole Roman Republic. Remember, Caesar had already been elected pontiff, and there were 15 pontiffs in what was called the College of Pontiffs. And the Pontifex Maximus was the head pontiff, and historically it had been chosen by these 15 other pontiffs, They would choose one of their own and make him the Pontifex Maximus, but the rules had recently been changed to make it a popular election. And this is good news for Caesar who had just been throwing one of the greatest parties ever seen in Rome as aedile. And he was getting very popular with the masses as a consequence of this. So he decides to run for Pontifex Maximus and the other two candidates were way more experienced and established. And had it still been decided by the other Pontiffs, one of them would have won for sure. But Caesar wins. So he's the chief priest, the Pontifex Maximus, which by the way, is still the name of the Pope. And that's another way that Caesar's legacy lives on. But this gives him a ton of airtime, so to speak, in public rituals and religious ceremonies. The people have a chance to see him looking important all the time. And that's a huge boost to his career. He also gets a state-sponsored home as chief priest. It's kind of like the White House. It just changes hands to whoever's Pontifex Maximus. So for the first time, he gets to move out of Sabura and into this great mansion right at the heart of Rome. So this is a big deal for his career, not for its own sake, but because of what it's going to mean for his political career going forward. I should mention that Pontifex Maximus was not a magistrate, so it wasn't elected for a year. Caesar was going to be Pontifex Maximus for the rest of his life. And again, a priesthood is just sort of a position that you hold as you do other stuff. It's not a job. So Caesar still serves as praetor the next year. And Caesar spends his year as Praetor in Rome. It's a little bit up and down. He has a few minor accomplishments as well as a few minor scandals, but he gets through them all. And remember, Praetors and Consuls were usually sent to be governors after their year in office. Consuls would usually get the really cool foreign commands with lots of warfare, and Praetors would get commands that were a little less prestigious and a little more tranquil. So after his year as Praetor, he gets sent back to Spain, where he had been second in command just a few years previously. But this time he's getting sent as governor. Spain is kind of frontier territory and it's not very wealthy and it's perfectly fine post for the year after being a Praetor, but it's not really his end goal. Also at this time, Caesar's debts are getting so big that he basically has to sneak out of Rome as Praetor. He couldn't be prosecuted. That was a law that no one in public office could be prosecuted. And as governor of Spain, he couldn't be prosecuted either. Again, it's a public office but there was a narrow gap during which he could be sued by his creditors for all these debts he's racking up and not paying off. So he has to sneak out of Rome in the middle of the night and sail to Spain. Now, I just said he was looking to be governor and make himself rich, but, you know, obviously this is not what he was looking for because Spain wasn't where the real action was. This is Caesar's next step, but it is definitely an intermediary step, and he knows that. And he comes into Spain, he's energetic, he raises new troops, and he gets to work fixing up stuff. Brigandage had been a big problem. So he starts cleaning up crime. There were also a few rebel tribesmen who didn't want to submit to Roman rule. And previous governors hadn't wanted to deal with it. So they just kind of let them go do their own things. But Caesar is itching to prove himself. He wants a fight. So he decides he's going to go put these rebel tribes under Roman rule. And initially he has a lot of success. Speed is always a really important attribute for these great conquerors. And Caesar is no different. He attacks quickly and decisively. He beats the Spanish rebels in a few initial engagements, and then he pursues them to the Atlantic coast where they take refuge on a small island. His first attempt to take the island fails, but one attribute that Caesar had plenty of was persistence. So he summoned warships from another city in Spain, Cadiz, and uses those to surround the island and force the rebels to surrender. He then sailed up the coast to where there were more rebel towns, and the sight of his forces scared them into capitulation. These big oared warships that the Romans used were completely unknown to the tribesmen in this area. And they would have seemed like tanks. This was this really advanced technology that they had never seen before. So they're intimidated by it and they're awed and they quickly surrender and Caesar is able to bring them in line. When these people surrender, Caesar accepts their surrender. He doesn't seriously punish them and he does his best to turn them into tax paying Roman subjects and then moves on. This is a strategy you see Caesar use time and time again. He was absolutely ruthless in war, but the second that the war is over, he's very forgiving and he turns his former enemies into allies in very short order. After a year in Spain, he's defeated the rebels and accomplished all of his goals. The governor's only served for a year, as you'll remember, so he heads back to Rome. And on the way out of Spain, his party passes through a small mountain village. And a friend jokingly asks, hey... Do you think there are political struggles, even in such a poor and dirty village as this? And his friends laugh at these poor backwards peasants, but Caesar gets very serious. And he says, quote, I would rather be the first man in a village like this than the second man in Rome. And I love this because it shows you the absolute clarity that Caesar had around his goals. He wanted to be the first man in Rome, the most powerful man in Rome. And that was it. That kind of clarity and focus is really powerful. So many people are held back because they do not have a very clear vision of what they want in life. They don't have clear goals, but Caesar very obviously did. He gets back to Rome and he's got two objectives. Be elected as consul and celebrate a triumph. A triumph was basically the greatest honor you could achieve as a Roman. It was given to generals for exceptional military service. Your men had to nominate you. And if they nominated you, then you could apply to the Senate. And if the Senate granted it to you, then you get to come into Rome wearing a wreath of laurels and celebrate your achievements in a huge parade, huge festival that would be celebrated all through Rome. And these triumphs were very rare, and they were a very big deal. Caesar's men had nominated him for a triumph, and the Senate was inclined to give it to him. And of course, a triumph would add massively to your autoritas. At any given time in the Senate, there were between 300 and 600 senators, And yet you would only have a handful of senators who had ever earned a triumph, maybe four or five, a triumph for any Roman politician would be the literal crowning achievement of their political and military career. Now Caesar is 40. He's just had some really cool successes. And this seems like a career pinnacle, but he also wanted to run for consul. In fact, he's already sort of been running for consul, just like Napoleon. Caesar was a prolific letter writer. And he's been writing letters back to Rome his whole time in Spain to make sure he has support when he comes back and runs for consul and the elections are scheduled to occur right after he gets back. Now, Caesar is in a minor bind because by Roman law, you're not allowed to enter Rome before you celebrate your triumph. And if you do, you give up the ability to have a triumph celebrated at all. A triumph would take a few weeks to organize. And in the meantime, you just have to wait outside the city gates and to run for consul. You have to go into Rome and literally stand for election. You had to be there inside the city gates. So Caesar has to stay outside the gates if he wants to celebrate his triumph, but he has to go into them. If he wants to run for consul, Caesar appeals to have the Senate change the law to let him stand for election as consul in absentia and the Senate is ready to agree, but he has this enemy in the Senate, a guy by the name of Cato, and we'll hear more about Cato next episode when he and Caesar will really be at each other's throats. But Cato uses a filibuster to block the motion an exact filibuster. Like you see used in the U S Senate. Sometimes today, he just talks and talks until the day ends and the Senate doesn't have a chance to vote to allow Caesar to stand for election in absentia. So now Caesar truly is going to have to pick between celebrating his triumph and standing for election as consul. Many people spend time agonizing over this type of decision. You might expect him to agonize over it and delay the final decision until the last possible moment, but that's not what he does at all. Immediately after a messenger tells Caesar that Cato has blocked this motion and he's going to have to decide, Caesar is seen immediately striding up and through the city gates, effectively giving up the triumph. And think about what he's doing. This is like someone coming up to me and saying, hey, tomorrow can be national bend day. Everyone in the nation is going to celebrate me, gonna celebrate my life, my achievements. It's gonna be a holiday for a whole day. And everyone's just going to toast my name and say how awesome I am. And it's going to be great. This party and everyone's going to remember it for forever. But the only trade-off is you, Ben, you're not going to be able to run for president until you're 36. In America, you have to be 35 to run for president. And think of how ambitious I would have to be to say that trade-off isn't worth it. But that's what Caesar does. Remember, he knows what he wants. He wants to be the most powerful man in Rome. And you don't get that from celebrating one triumph in Spain. He needs to move forward. He needs to be in a position where he can fight bigger and more illustrious, more prestigious wars and gain even more fame and fortune. So he's moving forward. Well, he comes in and he does get elected consul along with one other guy. Remember there are always two consuls, but remember how consuls only serve for one year after which it's expected that they will go out and run a province. Well, the province that they would run after they were consul was always determined by the Senate before their term as consul. And for Caesar and the other consul, this guy by the name of Bibulus, it is determined that they will be sent together to deal with the woodland and country lanes of Italy. And that was a total slap in the face. He was hoping to get sent to Asia or Gaul or somewhere foreign and exotic where there was a war, but he's going backwards. This is less exotic, less interesting than it was in Spain. He wasn't going to be able to make a name for himself or a fortune for himself in the woods and country lanes of Italy, but the other senators could see how talented Caesar was and how fast he was rising. And here's this guy who is Pontifex Maximus and consul, and he's won the civic crown, the Roman medal of honor, and he's handsome and a good speaker and in limited action appears to be a very good general. So they didn't want to see this guy get too much power for himself. They were trying to put a check on him by giving him this very minor post for when he was finished being consul. And for Caesar, this is absolutely disastrous. His whole political gambit had been based on the idea that he would be able to serve as an important governor and in so doing, make enough money to pay off his debts. And there's no way that that's going to happen as the governor of the woodlands and country lanes of Italy. So Caesar decides he needs to do something drastic. So he forms an unexpected alliance. At the time, the most powerful men in Rome were these two guys named Pompey and Crassus. Pompey was a war hero, an unbelievably gifted general who had commanded troops in multiple major wars. He was beloved by his troops and by the people of Rome. Nevertheless, he was not a very gifted politician because he kept getting called away to fight these wars and he didn't have a chance to have a normal senatorial career. And as a consequence, he never really figured out how to navigate the political system. Now that he was home and not fighting anymore, the main thing he wanted was an allocation of land for his veterans. Soldiers at the time usually came from the ranks of the urban poor in Rome. And when they came home from a war, they didn't have a job or anything to do. So Pompey is trying to get a land allocation so that they have somewhere to go so that they can be farmers. But like I said, he wasn't a very gifted politician and he was having trouble passing this through. Part of it was because he had this enemy, the other most powerful guy in Rome. Crassus. Crassus was unbelievably rich. In fact, he was the one funding most of Caesar's debts. He was cunning, calculating, intelligent, and a shrewd and ruthless businessman. He had fought in some wars and performed admirably, but not on the scale of Pompey. He was powerful not because of his military career, but because of his business interests. It's interesting to hear about his career because Crassus was basically a property developer. He had a huge staff of slave artisans and he would buy buildings and renovate them. He also had Rome's first fire brigade, the first fire department of Rome, except they were privately owned by him. And in Rome's very poor and crowded streets, fires would break out pretty often. And he would wait until a fire broke out. And then as the fire raged over a couple of days, he would buy up property near the fire at a very steeply discounted rate. The owners would figure, hey, my property is about to burn down anyway. Someone's willing to buy it for cheap. Yeah, I'll sell it. And then Crassus would send in his firemen and save as much of the property as he could. And so now he's got this perfectly good working property where he can charge rent that he had bought at a very steeply discounted rate. So you can see he's this very ruthless, shrewd businessman using these techniques to gain a lot of power. Crassus and Pompey were enemies because of a conflict that they had had very early in their military careers. Crassus thought Pompey was trying to steal some credit for a military victory of his. And now they are both ex-consuls, and one of the reasons that they opposed each other is they both wanted to be the most powerful man in Rome. So they each wanted to stop the other guy from accomplishing too much. And I mentioned Pompey wanted that land allocation. Well, Crassus also had something that he wanted passed. There were these reforms concerning tax collection abroad that would profit him greatly. So Pompey and Crassus both need legislation passed really badly, And neither one of them can get it done, especially while they're both opposing each other. And Caesar comes in and brokers a deal. He proposes a three-way alliance while he is consul. Pompey will get the land for his veterans. Crassus will get his tax reforms. And Caesar will get assigned to a different post-consul governorship than the woodlands and country lanes of Italy. Seems kind of obvious on paper, but no one suspected it because Crassus and Pompey hated each other. It must have taken all of Caesar's charm and persuasiveness to get them to agree to work together. But they do. He pulls it off and this alliance becomes known as the first triumvirate. But now they have a different problem. When the other senators become aware of this alliance, they are very alarmed. The three most powerful people in Rome are all united together and that's pretty scary. They're afraid that they will monopolize power and leave nothing for the rest of them. So now a bunch of senators oppose them just to stop them from accomplishing stuff. And they basically say as much. When Caesar proposes some really good legislation that is difficult to criticize, the other senators still oppose it. And they say, yeah, now is not the time. Don't get me wrong. Legislation's great. Very tough to criticize. But we better wait until later to pass it. And there's no good reason to do this, except to deny Caesar the credit, the opportunity to pass this on his watch. The result is that Caesar has to push really hard to get all this stuff passed. He has to use some legally sketchy techniques. But it all goes through in the end, including getting his post-consul assignment changed from the countryside of Italy to a very prestigious command in Gaul. Gaul roughly corresponds to modern day France. And it was exotic because it extended up into Northern Europe, which was very foreign and very exotic to the Romans. Also, there were conflicts bubbling up there. It was clear to everyone that it would soon spill over into open war and open war was good for your checking account if you were a governor. So this is great news for Caesar. It all happens in 59 BC. Caesar is 40 years old and he leaves for Gaul the next year. He's finally going to have his opportunity to make his fame and fortune. And this is where I leave you uh, for this episode. All we have really covered is the rise of Caesar and it's not even totally complete. Caesar was born in very unfavorable circumstances for someone with his ambitions He was born without a significant fortune to work with, without great family political connections. And when he was only a teen, Rome was taken over by a man who hated him and his family. And so it took him until he was 40 to even have a chance to prove himself at the highest level. But now he was going to get it. So the first takeaway is patience. If Caesar had died at age 40, no one would remember his name. If he died at 45, almost no one would have remembered his name. Caesar was one of the most charming, talented, intelligent, well-spoken and brave men of his time and of all time. And yet it still took him well into his forties until he accomplished his goal of becoming the first man in Rome. For me, when I see Mark Zuckerberg becoming a billionaire at age 23, I feel a little bit like Caesar when he saw that statue of Alexander the Great. It can be a little bit discouraging, but the story of Caesar goes to show that no matter how good your strategy is, Sometimes things just take time, and you have to learn to be patient. The second takeaway, and I'll mention this briefly, is focus. I know I talk about this in just about every episode, but that just goes to show you exactly how important of an attribute it is. Caesar knew exactly what he wanted to accomplish, and he worked for it his whole life. That is very simple, but very powerful. You can see it when he was forced to choose between the triumph and the consulship. He doesn't even have to think about it. He isn't distracted by side adventures, other goals, other cool offers, because he knows exactly what he is trying to do. The third thing I want to talk about is luck. Romans believed it was better to be lucky than good. And Caesar was viewed as having extraordinary luck. We don't know what he did to deserve the civic crown, that Roman medal of honor. That information is lost to history, but we do know that it was very dangerous and he was lucky to survive. Many of his elections through the years were very close. And he just happened to get lucky and win every single time. He was lucky to come along at a time when someone like Crassus could fund his political career. He gets all these lucky breaks, but he wasn't really lucky. I see this all the time in basketball. I love basketball. And if you watch, say, LeBron James, you'll notice the ball just always happens to bounce to him. In the moment, it really doesn't seem like it's just luck. But what's really happening is the accumulation of tiny advantages. So that when something lucky does happen for him, he can take advantage of it. And when it happens for his opponent, they can't. I remember when I was quite a bit younger, I got into an elevator and a very famous politician also got in this elevator and I realized that I had nothing to say to him, nothing to pitch him. I was just a college student with nothing to offer or ask, but I'm sure that for someone else that would have been their lucky career break. Some great up and coming political mover and shaker who just needed FaceTime with the right politician. They just needed the right connection. And so that elevator ride wasn't lucky for me because I wasn't prepared, but for someone who was prepared, it would have been lucky. I feel like on a certain level, that same thing has been happening with this podcast. I've gotten a few lucky breaks of people in prominent positions who share the podcast or help me out in some cool way. People who have a background in audio who are willing to help me out. And if you'll allow me to say so, I think that's because I work really hard and I think the end product is pretty good. I go on podcasting Reddit threads all the time and I see people wondering what they have to do, how they can get their lucky break with their podcast. And I think the answer is you work really hard, you get really prepared and you make really good content and then luck will usually come your way at some point. And it certainly did for Caesar. Okay, well, there's more to discuss about the life of Caesar, including basically his entire career as a general. He will be at war for the entire rest of his life. He's on the cusp of invading Gaul, and not long thereafter, he will take over Rome as emperor and come to control most of the known world. So tune in next time to find out exactly how Julius Caesar really does take over the world. Until then, thank you for joining me.